Second Peter uh, 3, and we'll start here at verse 3. Knowing this first, that there shall come in the last days scoffers, walking after their own lusts, and saying, Where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of the creation. For this they willingly are ignorant of, that by the word of God the heavens were of old, and the water standing out of the water and in the water, whereby the world that then was, being overflowed with water, perished. But the heavens and the earth which are now, by the same word, are kept in store, reserved unto fire against the day of judgment and perdition of godly, ungodly men. But, beloved, be not ignorant of this one thing, that one day is with the Lord as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slack concerning his promises, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. The earth also and the works that are therein shall be burned up, seeing then that all these things shall be dissolved. What manner of persons ought ye to be in all holy conversation and godliness, looking for and hasting unto the day, coming of the day of the God, wherein the heavens shall be on fire, being on fire shall be dissolved, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. So far. Let us pray. Lord, we come before you as we turn now to your holy word. We ask that you would um, please uh, use me, a broken vessel, to bring forth the truths from your word, that the excellency and the power may be what you have spoken, what you have written. And Lord, may we be discerning hearers and um, willing uh, people to obey your word and um, pray for just salvation upon the lost and that uh, your name is magnified in Jesus' name. So um, last time we looked at verses 3 and 4, and I said then that I had four points that kind of scoped all of these verses from 3 to 7, and um, I will repeat the points, and this morning we're going to be doing points 2 through 4. So last time we looked at a challenged word, and then point 2 was a creating word, point 3 is an executive word, and point 4 is a final word. So a challenged word, a creating word, an executive word, and a final word. And you see, obviously, that everything centers on the word. And remembering what we saw last time in verses 3 and 4, we saw that the word is challenged by scoffers. These scoffers we saw were there in presence. We saw the wickedness they practiced, and we saw the pride in that they challenged the return of Jesus Christ and his coming back as judge and Lord of all things. And so those were what we looked at last time in verses 3 and 4. And we saw their challenge was simple. They said all things continue as they were from the beginning of the creation. And say they, they were, like we would say today, uniformitarians, which means they believe that the present, how things are now, is the key to the past, that all existing forces today have operated the same or uniformly throughout time. There's been no cataclysms. There's been no massive changes in history. And Peter is now going to rebut that and set the record straight on these matters. So first of all, a creating word. Verse 5. 
He says, for this they are willingly ignorant of. Notice he starts with the word for because he's going to now explain why these guys are wrong. And they're not just, he says, misinformed teachers. He says they are literally in the Greek, it says, for this is hidden from them by their willing it to be so. That's how it literally reads. This is not unfortunate ignorance. They couldn't say, oh, oh man, we didn't know about the flood. We, we just had never heard of this before. Or they, they could not say, oh, we didn't know God had judged the world in the past. No, this is willful ignorance, he calls it. And that's why it's hidden from them, because they don't want to see it. He says that uh, these facts from Scripture, he says they intentionally turn their backs from them, what is in front of their face. Luther would call it, a guilty ignorance. Which brings the question to us, how do we handle inconvenient truths? Things we kind of don't really always want to consider because they might mean action. They might mean we have to see things differently. Perhaps, perhaps you're the person rejecting God's command to forgive a family member who has really hurt you. Sometimes that happens, right? Wounds cut deep, and you don't want to forgive somebody. But God calls us to forgive. Maybe you conveniently ignore God's design for manhood and womanhood because you kind of want to do things your way, and you want to assume roles that weren't intended for you by God. Perhaps you choose to willingly disregard your conscience, and you go ahead and watch that movie anyways, even though your conscience tells you it's not right. And you willingly turn your back to that. Or perhaps you buy that item that you have actually set your heart upon. And your conscience is bearing witness. And we are called not to violate conscience. Are you prepared to own all of God's word? Or only some of it? What stands in the way of such obedience for you? Have you thought about that? Why, why am I giving in to these sins? Have I dwelled upon that? What's in the way? You know, if you think about intentional neglect, if you do that at work, if you intentionally disregard the boss's orders, it will get you fired. If you do this in relationships, you will ruin and destroy your relationships. Why would it be any different with God if we willfully, ignorantly ignore, sorry, his, his standards? And Do you think God is going to just shrug it off and say, well, that's just the way people are? It's not how God operates. And so Peter dismantles this ignorance by setting the record straight. He's stating the facts, but he doesn't do this for the scoffers. Remember, his readers, he had called them his beloved. In chapter 3, is thick with that word beloved, his readers. That's who he's going to set the record straight for in case they were duped by these scoffers. And notice he begins with the heavens and the earth. He says that by the word of God, the heavens were of old and the earth standing out of the water and in the water. You can't miss the point where it says, from of old. He's going all the way back to the creation, the beginning. And particularly here, verses 1 and 2 of the Bible. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. And the earth was without form and void. And darkness was upon the face of the deep. Keep that in mind. That's the beginning. Darkness, unformed void. And then it says this, and the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. 
So within that void and that darkness, we also have waters, which we know in Israel's history and in the Bible is always associated with chaos and darkness and depth. And, um, and that's where it starts. Now, it's interesting that he does this. So Peter will go back to the beginning, because remember, they said from the beginning, all things have continued as they were. And Peter starts in the beginning, he picks that up, and he defends the reality of an upcoming cataclysmic end of the world at the final judgment by going back to the unique beginning. And he does this in a really striking way, because he says the earth standing out of the waters and in the water. Now, he didn't have to say that. You might say, well, he could have just said, God created the heavens and the earth and the flood came doesn't do that which is striking because he now pulls in by saying the earth standing out of the waters and in the waters he's pulling in verse 9 of creation and God said let the waters under the heaven be gathered together unto one place and let the dry land appear and it was so Psalm 24 2 says this for he hath founded it the earth upon the seas and established it upon the floods there's something God does that would radically change and alter the, the darkness and the void and the waters to bring forth order from creation. That is cataclysmic. That's unprecedented. That's not something continuing as it always was, because if it was, we would still see the void, the chaos, and without form. So Peter already says, from the outset, you guys got it wrong. From the outset, God stepped in and changed things. Some people actually think that the earth uh, was formed out of an enormous ball of water. Um, We can't be too sure of that, but that's an interesting way to approach creation. We know it talks about the firmament in creation, and it forms some sort of a wall of separation between the heavens, the waters above, and the the waters beneath. And um, we would think of probably something like the atmosphere then, and that the waters in the sky, the, the rain, the hail, the snows that are above, and the waters beneath being the oceans, the rivers, and then obviously the reservoirs within the earth. And so we've got water, you know, on both sides. The point, again, is that precisely from chaos, God steps in and intervenes radically. And so the scoffer's premise is wrong from the beginning. And sometimes we miss those things. You know, when we we hear people scoff the Bible and and we miss that their premise is wrong, the beginning point is wrong because they don't begin in faith. And we need to begin with the word of God in all things. Notice as well in verse 5 when it says, the earth standing out of the water and in the water. That word standing is really unique here. It means that this order is being held together. And it, it identifies that standing, the being held together by the word of God, the central theme in everything here. Because what did the scoffers challenge? The promises of God, the word of God. God spoke these things. Look, it's not going to happen. And so he says, no, precisely by the word of God, these things are happening. Psalm 33, verses 6 through 9. By the word of the Lord were the heavens made, and all the host of them by the breath of his mouth. He gathered the waters of the sea together as an heap. He layeth up the depth in storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spoke, and it was done. He commanded, and it stood fast. It stood fast, the consisting, the standing 
You know, when these scoffers mock the word of God and the return of the judge of the earth, they're mocking the Son. And the Bible is replete with verses of specifically talking about how Jesus is the one that holds all things together. As the word is, world is standing or consisting, we could go to Colossians, but also Hebrews 1.3 where it says this about the Son, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person, and then this, upholding all things by the word of his power. That's Jesus upholding Everything right now. Have you considered that about Jesus Christ? That today our Jesus is holding this planet together. All the laws of physics, all the billions of subatomic actions are being held together by the Word of God. You're only sitting on your chairs because God has ordered and Jesus is consisting those elements together right now. Water boiled for your tea this morning because Jesus is sustaining that law of physics. Your car ran this morning because he's sustaining the laws of combustion and the principles of fuel combusting in different ways. Do we consider that the very air we take into our lungs is sustained by the power of God Almighty, Jesus Christ, by the word of his power? It's holding all these things together. Even in Isaiah, right, when it talks about the stars, he calleth them all by name. Everyone is numbered. That's our Jesus. Now, perhaps we hear of people saying, well, we're kind of at the mercy of Mother Nature when big rains happen or Seasons of drought were at the mercy of Mother Nature. What, what an abominable way to look at this world, as if it's just running the course of some figment of our imagination. What an unbelief, what a materialism that brings us. And then to think, what mercy that our God sustains such scoffing and such, such unbelief. You know, when is the last time you took a walk in nature. Spurgeon often, when he was depressed, he would go for walks and just marvel at the handiwork of God and see these things. Sometimes we don't take the time for that anymore. We're too busy. We get distracted by our work. We get distracted in our work, not even to see the handiwork of God in what he has given us. Take your children outside sometimes and just marvel at what God has made for us and he sustains all these things. What has caused our amazement to be muzzled? You know, we get so used to it, the changing of the seasons, and it muzzles our mouths. What, what thoughts in our minds are muting our worship and our adoration of our God? Do you consider those things? Should we not praise him every day? The Bible calls us to do that. So to sum up this point, the first point, the creative word, Remember that before even speaking of the flood, which most people see in this passage, Peter already shut, Peter shuts down the objection at the outset. The present steadiness of the world is no argument against cataclysmic change. For creation itself progressed with a profound intervention by the word of God. The separation of the waters forming the earth and that same word is standing, sustained by the very word of God. That leads us to point three, if you're following along from last week then, an executive word, whereby the world that then was being overflowed with water perished. Peter moves from the creative power of God to the executive power of God. That means his authority to rule and to judge. 
And that judgment we know came, right? We know about this flood. But notice the little word, whereby. That's two Greek words squished together in one and properly translated as whereby or through which. Um, whereby what? What's the, the thing whereby this whole flood came? What do you think it is? Well, if you look at the text, it's referring back for sure to the water, whereby by means of the water, the floods came. No questions asked. But I agree with those commentators who also see that water inherently tied together to the word of God who was holding them in their place. So whereby being God, his word, and the water as the means, the flood came. The very element which the word of God used to first make the dry land, make it man's home, would be released by him as well in destroying them. And God says that in Genesis six seventeen, Behold, I, even I, do bring a flood upon the heaven to destroy all flesh wherein is the breath of life from under heaven and everything that is in the earth shall die. It's at God's command that these things happen. Remember, they scoffed his command. Peter says, no, by his command, the waters came tumbling in. The heavens opened up and rain poured down. And as is so important to understanding what took place, the fountains of the deep broke up. A lot of times in our children's books, we just see rain. And it rained and poured for 40 nights, right? No, no, no. The fountains of the deep broke up. It was cataclysmic. It was disastrous. And so Peter knows nothing of a regional flood. Perhaps you've heard the concept of a global flood being discounted, sorry, because people say, well, that doesn't fit the majority science. Well-meaning Christians might say, well, you know, the idea of a global flood is interesting, and it seems to be what the Bible teaches, but the science says this. It can't be global. Here's a paper from a scientist. You heard that before? It's very common. When I was in university, that's what we were fed. Recently, one of the most prominent defenders of an old earth and of a local flood, Hugh Ross, was asked this. He was asked, if the majority of scientists were suddenly to say, you know what, we're wrong about this age of the earth thing, would that change your mind? To which Hugh Ross instantly replied, yes, I would be a young earth creationist. That demonstrates that Hugh Ross's ultimate foundation of how to approach these questions is science first, then the word. The scoffers did the same thing. They went to their science first. Things are always continuing as they are. Uniformitarianism. And then they tried to apply that to the Bible. Peter does the opposite. Peter starts with the word of God to understand all things. He believes the word of God. If the flood was local, Peter's argument would fall flat on its face because there's been local floods before. So there would, that would just be part of the normal course of events. For Peter's argument to hold water, water had to cover the whole earth. <laughs> In fact, 
Presupposing a global flood starting with the Bible actually helps us to understand things like the fossil record, understand things like the layers of geology. It makes way more sense. I remember going through um, the Drumheller Museum once with uh, um, an expert in creation science, and he dismantled every little um, pamphlet or every, every sign that was there and showed how it fit way more clearly with the Bible. It's very exciting to do, to go there and to just get lectured on the Bible in a pagan institution. It's very good to do. I'd recommend you do it. Furthermore, another thing that this just speaks volumes of is that when missionaries go around the world and they go to pagan cultures, all pagan cultures have flood myths, flood stories. They have legends about a global flood, and they all have little nuances about them, but they often have a boat, they have waters, and they have animals going to them. It's really interesting, and they all testify to a common truth, which the Bible perfectly and accurately recounts. Perhaps the flood seems like some sort of a children's story to you. You know, when you look at the pictures of floods, you see the, the boat and the animals are all squished in there and the, 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 uh, the giraffe is sticking his neck out and he can, they can hardly fit. That's not at all how it was. Uh, we were on a full-size ark once and it's amazing how much room there is in them. And all of this just, it just is part of what the Bible speaks about. And perhaps we don't think about the scope of these things very much. Before the death of Jesus Christ, the flood was the single biggest act of judgment on this world. I think that's staggering to think about. Notice Peter's choice of words. The world, it says, perished, apoleto. This does not mean that it was annihilated, and we know that because the world is still here. But it means that the order of the world was destroyed. It was completely mutated. Landscapes changed. Countless lives perished. The offspring of the the sons of God and, and the daughters of men were killed. And many, many, many people died, all but eight. You know, we might say, oh yeah, I'm not a uniformitarian. I agree with the Bible here, but sometimes we functionally live as though our society will continue forever, as if it's invincible. Could it be that we entrust too much to our bank accounts, to our insurance policies, to our health care plans, to our democracy? If God, in a moment, brought 1,600 years of civilization to naught, he will do it again in a moment. The word of God. And so let us tremble this morning. Walk away just trembling. Being in awe of the majesty of our God. Nothing compares to his inexhaustible power. Nothing holds a candle to the authority of the word. He speaks it and it happens. Imagine that power. This is the God who caused the sun to stand still. This is the God who shielded his servants from the blazing furnace to which even the soldiers that got close, the strongest and most valiant of soldiers, fell over and they were protected in the time of Daniel. This is the God who raises up waters as a wall so people can pass through. This is the the God, the Jesus Christ, who heals incurable diseases just when people touch him. This is the Jesus who walks on water, the depths of the seas, the chaos, as if it's nothing. He is Lord of heaven and earth. Do we have any reason to be suspicious 
of what he has spoken. The Puritan Stephen Charnock said this, a strong God and a weak faith in omnipotence do not suit well together. Strong God and a weak faith in omnipotence, all power, do not suit well together. Instead, as we read this morning in our call to worship, happy is he that hath the God of Jacob for his help, whose hope is in the Lord his God, which made heaven and earth and the sea and all that therein is, which keepeth truth forever. Scoffers just needed to read their Bible instead of scoffing it. And so we've seen God's creative word. We've seen his executive word. Now we move to the final word, verse 7. But the heavens and the earth, which are now by the same word, are kept in store, reserved unto fire against the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. Notice the emphasis in the text moves to now. You see that? But the heavens and the earth, which are now. Literally in the Greek, it's front-loaded. But the now heavens and earth. That's set in contrast to the previous verse where it says the then world. So we've got the now world and we've got the then world. The then world is before the flood, the 1600 years. The now world is everything since. That's where we are. And we've seen if God has intervened at creation by bringing order and he has intervened at the flood by bringing destruction, he will do it again with the now world, the heavens and the earth. And so Peter is drawing all three of these times together. And notice he repeats the theme by the same word. Notice the words, by the same words. The same means, it will be by the word. It will be the same word. It will be the word of God, not some other word. And so these scoffers, they're asserting immutability to the current situation, all things will change. Not everything, or nothing will change. All things will remain the same. So they say, time or this planet is immutable. Peter says the opposite. God's word is immutable. That's the difference. Perhaps you've lost sight of this. You know, think about immutability. We uh, might think, well, our life is kind of predictable. We often think that way or function that way. You might think, well, I'll always kind of have this kind of a job. It's kind of going to be my life. Perhaps you're young, single, you hope to be married, but relationships haven't worked out so far, and you think, well, maybe I'll always be single. Perhaps you're married, and you think you'll always have your spouse beside you. For years, that'll be the case. Perhaps you have confidence in your health. You can still run fast. You don't have bad knees yet. You don't have arthritic pain yet. And you think, oh, that'll be for years yet. It'll come late in life. Perhaps we need to be careful with such confidence. If Peter shuts the mouths of scoffers about cosmic things, how much more should arrogant predictions be silenced about immediate things. You do not know these things. Isn't it God who sets the terms of his dominion? Isn't it God's right to give or to take at his will? And so James says, don't boast yourself of tomorrow. 
He says, instead of saying, oh, I'll be there. I'll be there tomorrow. We'll see you next week. He says, ye ought to say, if the Lord will, we shall live and do this or that. It used to be much more common for people to sign off with DV, Deo Valente, God willing. It's not so common anymore. What's happened to our church? Notice in the text it says that uh, the heavens and earth are, by the same word, are kept in store and reserved. Strong words here. This speaks of the wickedness of the enemies of God's people who are storing up wrath unto the day of wrath. And God is remembering that and he's storing up all of creation on account of them. Speaking of the same idea of storing up in Deuteronomy 32 in Moses' song, his last song, it says about the wickedness, is not this laid up in store for me and sealed up among my treasures? God is saying, I don't suffer from amnesia. Do you suppose the omniscient God will forget something on judgment day? Do you think he's going to forget to come and show up? Absolutely not. He is storing up the heavens and the earth unto that day of destruction and final judgment. His perfect justice and incredible patience are seen upon this undeserving world in this idea of storing up. Perhaps you have unsaved family members or friends. I think this whole idea of reserving and storing up shows us the incredible patience God has that he has not brought it yet. Today is a day of salvation. Today is a day of hope. Which means, because we're waiting, and it may not be popular, but we must warn our friends and our family members about their accountability before God Almighty. As the Bible says, Paul says in Romans 2.5, they are treasuring up unto themselves wrath against the day of wrath. Have we told our friends that? Do family members know that we expect and live towards that day? Does God owe it to us to extend or to hold off? Not at all. Does he owe it to anyone to hear the gospel? Is God in our debt that we should demand he delay his judgment, I think we should marvel at this patient God who is so gracious to this planet. And it does urge you and me, I was very convicted by that, to speak more boldly, with more confidence about that day. Because nothing and nobody will thwart the gospel advance in this time until that last day. It will not be a heat death. It will not be the loss of the earth's magnetic field. It will not be the foamings of the devils nor the wickedness of man that will stop in this time as God holds off by his grace, as he is storing up all things. None of this will stop the advance of the everlasting gospel. Christ, it says in Isaiah 53, will see the travail of his soul and he shall be satisfied. His sheep will hear his voice and then the end will come. And it is that same voice that is crying out through the gospel that is upholding this planet until that day. It's all the same voice. It's the voice in the gospel. It's the voice that created all things. And that is the voice that will judge everyone. 
Notice it says, all things are reserved unto fire unto that day. Why fire? It's because God has pledged he would not destroy it anymore with the flood, right? Neither shall all flesh be cut off anymore by the waters of a flood. Neither shall there be any more a flood to destroy the earth. The final judgment is set to be a blazing fire. That is not new in the Bible. Fire is directly associated after the flood specifically with judgment. We know of Sodom and Gomorrah. Peter has spoken of it before. But we must remember what the text says. Look how it says it. Reserved unto fire against the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. The fire is not directly associated with the burning of the world, but it is associated with the judgment of people. The world was destroyed by a flood because of the wickedness of man. That's why the flood came. Similarly, the destruction of the heavens and the earth are because of the wickedness of man, not the reverse. And this theme of the judgment being on man's wickedness is replete in the Old Testament. One example, Malachi 4.1, For behold, the day cometh that shall burn as an oven, and all the proud, yea, and all that do wickedly shall be stubble. And the day that cometh shall burn them up, saith the Lord of hosts, that it shall leave them neither root nor branch. Where does this leave all of us? Know this, know this. One commentator said rightly, this set of verses is among the clearest in the Bible about the destiny of the ungodly. Judgment and perdition. On that day, think about it. People are going to be summoned. Everybody's going to be raised to be summoned. Your secret sins will be fully exposed at the bench of God's justice. Paul writes, In the day when God shall judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ, according to my gospel. You think about that, according to my gospel. So part of the gospel is saying that this Jesus who died will come again to judge everyone. We forget about that. What's about Jesus loves you, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. But oh, no, Jesus loves me, this I know. And he will judge the unrepentant. Speak the whole gospel, because Paul says it's according to my gospel. And it is because your guilt and my guilt must and will be accounted for. And if you are outside of Jesus Christ this morning, any one of us sitting here, if we die outside of Jesus Christ, you will face perdition, destruction. That's not annihilation. You're not going to evaporate into air. No, no, no. It's eternal suffering. And it's sad, it's dark. Everything the ungodly treasured in this life will be gone. Possessions will be no more. In hell, relationships will be eternally severed and light will be completely extinguished. Jesus said to those who spurned his word, who spurn his gospel and have no interest in him, he says, depart from me, ye cursed, into everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. This final judgment will make the flood look like a simple fire drill. And so, 
The question we need to ask ourselves, if we are not in Jesus, will I die unrepentant? Will I die in my sins? Ask your friends that. Ask your neighbors that. How are you going to die? Philip Doddridge, the Puritan, said this, If you die in your sins, the wide gates of hell shall be opened to receive thee, and they shall be shut upon thee forever to enclose thee, to be fast barred by the almighty hands of divine justice, to prevent all hope and all possibility of escape forever. Are you being willfully ignorant and passing the days and the weeks just ignoring this? Too busy with my farm. First, let me do this, Lord. Then I'll come and follow you. First, let me get my house in order. First, my kids. Then church. Then the people of God. First, first my farm. First, let me get my trade. First, let me get married. Then I'll busy myself with your things. What a day of confusion and utter despair that will be. It will be on that day that if you are counted among the scoffers, we can just imagine the cries and the shrieks of despair that the Bible says people will call on the mountains and the rocks to fall on them, to hide them from the wrath of the Lamb. Imagine realizing this. There is he who we mocked. He whose gospel we denied. There is him who we called a myth. There is the one whose patience we tested and we tested and we spurned. There is him who once walked among us as a man of sorrows, familiar with suffering, who now comes in the glory of ten thousands of angels. Can you imagine scoffers saying, there is the Lord of glory. And we wanted nothing to do with him. Now, if we're not ready, you might be sitting here and thinking, well, I, I'm go- I hope I can pass that day somewhere because I've been a pretty good person. I've, I've cleaned up my life. I'm no longer who I once was. I had remorse, which is regretful action, but not repentance. You think trusting in your own merits will help you to stand on that day? Do you honestly think that we can arrogantly suppose that we set the bar of God's justice? Do you think God is like judges on earth, many of whom are corrupt? Will will Christ strip himself of his holiness on judgment day in order to let guilty sinners off the hook? God will not lose his holiness because we have lost our holiness. That's not the God we serve. Dear people, if that's where you've been, young people, if that's how you think you will stand on that day, somewhere on your own merits, remember this, God's standard is absolute, 100% pure perfection. Not one drop of sin can be in the standard, can be in to be, to be part of his holiness and his, 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 his heaven. Stephen Sharnock said this, God's justice is the great witness of his purity. God's justice is the great witness of his purity. The Bible says that our God is beautiful in holiness, 
And that is how we must look at the day of judgment. It is a display of his holiness. It is a display of his son who will see the travail of his soul and who will call all people to perfect justice. The flood was global. There wasn't a mountaintop from which you could hide it. In fact, could hide from it. In fact, when they look at dinosaur prints, it's interesting. They go up mountains. They're trying to find the highest mountains to escape the waters, but they can't, and they all die in big pools. That's why they're often pooled together. There is not a place within all of creation to escape this judgment on sin. But God provided an ark. And if the ark was the way to pass over the mountaintops, in the same way, like I said, there's not a place within this creation you're going to find a refuge. But there is someone who came from outside of creation and entered into creation. He himself is the ark. God came down in his son. And the same Lord who is coming again has given himself as the only way to pass through the waters of judgment, the fires of judgment. Turn from your own self-efforts. Turn from your pathetic crutches of self-achievement and pride like we're so often tempted to do. And instead, as we sang this morning, trust in the efficacious, the pure, the wrath-absorbing righteousness of Jesus Christ. We sang it because the sinless Savior died. My sinful soul is counted free for God the just is satisfied. He's satisfied to look on him and pardon me. That great word, propitiation, satisfying the wrath of God. That's what Jesus did. He propitiated. He satisfied God's wrath on sin. Oh, you might be here this morning and you think, oh, I'm the worst of sinners. If you knew what I did, if you've seen my last year or my last weeks, if you've seen my addictions, the guilt of my selfishness, my lusts, my unthankfulness, the pornography I've been addicted to, all the things I have done against him, surely he cannot forgive me. Well, the Bible is clear. There is no stain so deep that Christ's blood cannot wash it clean. You might be thinking, well, how can I approach this holy God? How can I come before him? How must I meet my God? Horatius Bonner said, it is with your sins that you must come to God, for you have nothing else that you can call your own. But when you come with it, to him with your sins and you plead Jesus' righteousness, you have come to the one who washes them clean. He pleads his wounds on our behalf. He offered his life to save sinners. And Christians, is it not true that all our weaknesses, all our constant failings and the coldness of our heart and the frailty of our faith can so often cause us to doubt again and to turn inward and we start to measure ourselves against one another? Perhaps you've done that this week. You look at some people in the church or some people, great preachers maybe, and and you think, oh, surely I'm not anything like them. Look at them. They're so holy. Look at me, I'm, I'm a nobody. I'm just a pitiful Christian all my life. And that's maybe how you, how you approach church and Christianity. Did Christ not come for the sick? Did he not come to save the lost? Did he not leave the 99 to seek out that one? That's our Jesus. On judgment day, the holiest 
of all Christians, those you looked up to and think, oh, wow, look at them. They will be accounted equally holy as the least of all Christians because we are all equally holy in one Lord Jesus, one Savior. He is our holiness. He is our righteousness, and we are accounted in him. So there is really no difference. We are all sinners, saved by grace, and our holiness is in another. It is in Jesus Christ. So stop comparing. Look to him. Look to him who died for you. And all the fruits of sanctification, all of them are but God's gifts of grace working in us and through us, through us. Nothing of myself I bring, simply to the cross I cling. The chorus of heaven is not going to be marked. Oh, look at that saint. Look how much he achieved. Surely he's going to be high in the kingdom of heaven. No, that's not what the Bible says. It says, behold the lamb that was slain. Worthy is the lamb to receive honor. Worthy is God Almighty. And so I challenge you this morning, all of us, any of us, look towards that day. Look towards that final day through the lens of the cross of Jesus Christ. Can you imagine the joy of our great king when the promised inheritance, what he promised, what he spoke, will be fully realized when the king will receive his ransomed people sinners and they're ushered into his divine presence not one of his ransomed are lost they were all kept perfectly by the power of god why because our god never breaks his promises amen let's pray Oh, Lord God, we come before you and we thank you for your faithfulness. Lord, we thank you that every word you have spoken, not one will drop to the ground. We thank you that we can have confidence in what you have promised. And so, Lord, if we're despairing this morning, may we look to you. If we're lost this morning, may we look to you. Oh, Lord, may we go from this place worshiping Jesus Christ and him crucified. In your name we pray. Amen.